You're listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. Greetings, church family of mine at Resurrection Presbyterian Church, and uh, welcome back, all of our friends, uh, to another podcast of Resurrection Life. So glad uh, that you found us here uh, in a veritable sea of podcast options these days. <laughs> to all of you, uh, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Uh, friends, I regard my sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew to be one of the most important that I've ever preached, uh, and especially so those final messages on the Great Commission. Today I'm sharing a fifth sermon on those last words of Jesus, and I am steering straight towards the big question. That is, in light of the sheer immensity of what Jesus calls his disciples to do, making disciples of all the nations, what exactly are the prospects for success? Uh, Should we think of this as a lofty goal, but on the other hand, be very realistic that it will actually never be accomplished? Or does Jesus actually leave his disciples with assurances that he will do what is necessary to give success to their labors at global conquest on behalf of Christ? Well, I suppose you can tell by the title of this podcast how I am going to answer this big question. I'm going to invite you to hear Jesus' words through the Jewish ears of his disciples, whose expectations of the future of the world were shaped by the Old Testament scriptures. And I'm once again going to call for us to take seriously the actual words of the Great Commission, and particularly the significance of the promise that Jesus gives to those he's just commissioned. Folks, there's something more than optimism that's warranted here. There is an assurance of success that Jesus gives to encourage his servants in their gloriously immense task. Now, just a note here in advance, uh, I am going to be making reference in this sermon to the three great schools of thought in the field of what we call eschatology, or the doctrine of the end times. But you'll know that I am not actually going to be referencing them by name in the sermon. Uh, Sometimes I think, folks, that's a distraction that's really unnecessary uh, to reference labels that, uh, particularly in the preaching, uh, can bring various things to mind to various people. So in the sermon, I opt for trying to pinpoint uh, the thesis of each of the three views. But many of my listeners are going to recognize that when I speak, for example, of those who believe that the Great Commission will not be wholly fulfilled until Jesus returns, uh, I'm speaking of premillennialism. And when I speak of those who believe that the Great Commission has already sufficiently been fulfilled, well, I'm speaking there of what's called amillennialism. And those same listeners will recognize that when I see in Jesus words of assurance of success in accomplishing this great commission in the time between his comings, well, I'm advocating for the view that has traditionally been called postmillennialism. Folks, there's a lot of scripture texts that have to be uh, grappled with in this field of 
eschatology, and uh, many of them are difficult to understand or even uh, to relate to one another. But I don't think this text, the text of the Great Commission, is one of them. I think it's one of the clearest things that Jesus has said. And if we're willing to take it seriously, uh, I think it's a worthy touchstone in determining one's eschatology. And I think it points towards post-millennialism. I should add another note, though. Uh, My understanding of the Great Commission not only points me towards post-millennialism, but uh, it's also kept me from becoming what I'll call a partisan post-millennialist. By partisan, I mean someone who is perhaps prone or inclined to run down other schools of eschatology in order to promote his own uh, view. And the reason for this is a conviction that I've actually acquired since preaching on the Great Commission, and that conviction is this. All three schools of thought have historically included people with very robust views of what Jesus calls for in discipling the nations, and also very ambitious and impressive efforts to accomplish that in their day. So, for example, I've said over the years in this respect, uh, with amillennialists like Abraham Kuyper, who needs postmillennialism? And what I mean by that, of course, I'm referring to uh, the famous Dutch theologian of the 19th century, Abraham Kuyper, uh, and I'm referring to the fact that he founds a, f- a university, the Free University of Amsterdam. He serves as prime minister of the Netherlands. Uh, he's famous for his, uh, quote, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim mine. Many of you have heard Kuyper's famous utterance there as he uh, gave his opening address at the University of Amsterdam. Now, uh, that's a kind of amillennialism that has a robust view of the calling of Christ in the Great Commission. And for that matter, uh, I'm also aware that in our own country, uh, even in the last century, there have been many premillennialists who have likewise founded Christian universities, other Christian institutions, uh, they've engaged in social and political activity, and they have done all that along with personal evangelism and missions uh, out of a big view of the Great Commission, the big view that I've been arguing for here. So I do think faithfulness to Christ's calling and even hope for success in those endeavors have in many cases uh, been held by those uh, with differing eschatological paradigms than the one that I have, and I'm, I'm humbled by that. Uh, some of us in the church have a hard time living up to our eschatology. Uh, others of us seem to live better than our eschatology. So uh, that's what leads me or has led me in the days since I first preached on this text uh, to the conviction that the real divide among Christians today is not between pre, post, or ah, millennialists. Folks, I think it's between those with a big and robust view of what Christ has called his people to do in the time between his first and second comings and those with what I will call in this sermon a shrink-wrapped 
view of our calling as Christians. I get it, especially in the days in which we live. I understand the tendency to think that we need Jesus to come back in order to make disciples of all the nations. But folks, Jesus gave this commission to his disciples on the eve of his departure. In other words, it's what we've been called to do during his bodily absence from us in the world. But as I'll unpack in this message, as he departed to take his place physically and bodily in heaven, he gave assurances that as he did so, he would not leave us to accomplish this global conquest on our own. His presence would somehow actually be with us. And those were words, of course, that were gloriously fulfilled on the day of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, to enable Christ's disciples between his first and second comings uh, to fulfill the Great Commission. Well, this is a lengthy introduction. Uh, The good news is that you don't have to care much for various schools of thought in the field of eschatology uh, to profit from this sermon. I hope that all my listeners will be greatly encouraged by the fact that our Lord left us with more than marching orders in the Great Commission. He left us, brothers and sisters, with assurances of victory by the power of his presence with us. So, take heart, my friends. The Lord gives what he commands. He promises his enabling presence even as he gives a staggering summons to disciple the nations. I trust you'll be encouraged by this final sermon on our Lord's final words. As we've slowed down to consider these final words of our Lord, and you've seen me paying attention even to portions of verses, one of the elders asked me recently, Nathan, are you having trouble letting go? The answer is yes. I think I might need medication or therapy or something of those types when I am not preaching from Matthew any longer. But I have one more sermon, brothers and sisters, and it's a sermon I've been working on for quite a long time. You may be tempted to say, actually, that was three sermons, but uh, it's going to be in just one morning. I want to read this passage one more time, and as I do, let me say to you, each time I've read it, I found myself thinking, I am surely not reading this the way Jesus said it. I don't know what he sounded like when he said this. Did his voice go up? Did it go down? Did he just measure each word? I don't know. You can join me in wondering that as I simply read them one more time when you're hearing Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. We've seen how immense this calling is that Jesus gives to his disciples in these final words, not just to these disciples, but to all the disciples that would follow them. It's a calling of global conquest. We've also seen the means that he directs them to use in fulfilling this calling, tools of dominion of water and of words. And along the way, we've been wondering, is this an impossible task to be fulfilled with useless tools? Or is it something else? This morning, we need to face squarely this question, what are the prospects of success in achieving this great commission? Is Jesus just giving the disciples something big to shoot for? Or is there to be found, even in these words, some assurance that we will achieve what he's called us to do? What assurances are there, if any, that all the nations will be made disciples by means of water and words? It should be fairly obvious that that hasn't happened yet. So what's the chance of it ever actually happening? What are the prospects of success in fulfilling the Great Commission? This morning, we want to first look at assurances the disciples already had that the nations would become disciples. And then secondly, we'll look at the assurance of success found in Jesus' words of instruction. And thirdly, we'll look at the assurances of success found in Jesus' words of promise. We'll divide our time in those three ways this morning. As the disciples hear what Jesus says to them, I want you to recognize they already had assurances that all the nations would become disciples. As we might say, when Jesus says, make disciples of all the nations, they already had a category for that. They would have gotten this from their Bibles, from the scriptures. We call them the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures are full of assurances that the day is coming when all the nations would become servants or disciples of the one true God. Now, we can't look at the whole Old Testament. We have to look at representative passages, but we want to look at them together this morning to recognize what the disciples already had as they heard Jesus' words. Let's go to the Psalms as our main source this morning. Middle of your Bible, crack it open in the middle and turn to Psalm 22. And look with me at verse 27 and 28. Psalm 22, verse 27 
and 28. We read there, the psalmist says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. The psalmist is anticipating a time when all the nations will realize they were wrong not to worship the God of Israel. And they will turn, they'll repent of that, and they'll begin to worship the one they now know is actually the king over all the nations. Turn to Psalm 65. The first couple of verses with me. Psalm 65, the first two verses. David writes here, Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hears prayer, to you shall all flesh come. Come and do what? Praise, that's how the psalm has begun. Praise is due to you. All men owe you praise. And that will one day come about, the psalmist says in Psalm 65. Turn over to Psalm 86. And you'll see something very, very much the same. Psalm 86, we'll look at verse 8 to 10. Psalmist says, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. The reason he says in verse 8, there's none like you among the gods. is because he's very conscious that all the nations have gods. All the nations worship. They all have gods to whom they come in their worship. But there is no god like the true God. And the day is going to come when the nations will see this. And all the nations, you hear that expression again, don't you? All the nations you have made will come and worship before you. Turn to Psalm 134, or pardon me, 138, for one more example from the Psalms of this way of speaking. We could multiply these examples. These four will suffice. Psalm 138, verse 4. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. Now this is the same, another way of saying the same thing. All the nations coming to serve and sing to the Lord is the same as saying all the kings will come and sing of the ways of the Lord. Kings bring their kingdoms when they come. This is the concept of the psalmist. So as the disciples hear our Lord Jesus speaking of all the nations, 
They were good psalm singers, you know, and if for no other reason, they would have recognized that there is already found in the Old Testament scriptures these repeated assurances that the day is coming when all the nations will serve the Lord and worship him. That explains, by the way, the many occasions in which the psalms call the nations to worship the true God. Sometimes the psalms say it's going to happen. And then other times the psalmist says as if it were uh, saying this, nations, it's going to happen. You're going to do this. It's just a matter of time. Why don't you start now? Why don't you join me now? As a matter of fact, the psalmist anticipates that his worship will be a means to bringing that about. Psalm 66 reads, shout for joy to God, all the earth, come and see what he has done Psalm 68, O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Many of our hymns follow the Psalms quite appropriately in this kind of language. Brothers and sisters, this language of the Psalms then is represented throughout the prophets. The prophets join the songwriters, or the songwriters join the prophets as it may be, in speaking of a day when all the nations will worship the true God. Isaiah's gospel, uh, yes, Isaiah's gospel, Isaiah's prophecy is full of this gospel message. All the nations, Isaiah 2 tells us, will come to the house of God. And in Isaiah 2, we're told they'll all come in order to be taught of God. Daniel 2 gives us a different image. It gives us the image of a kingdom that's growing, that fills the whole earth and crushes all other kingdoms in its path. Zechariah is the messianic prophet. He's the one who uh, speaks so much of Messiah coming. And in Zechariah 9, Messiah, we're told, will speak to all the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea. The language of all the nations then is found throughout the prophets. And I want you to know that the prophets are not just content to speak in generalities. At times, they descend to particularities. They actually name the nations and prophesy when they will come and worship. Isaiah does this in particular. Listen to what he says about Egypt. The Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. So, brothers and sisters, when Jesus speaks to the disciples on that mountain, his final words, these men would have heard his words against the backdrop of all these assurances that their Bibles give them that one day all nations would worship God. The disciples didn't know exactly how this would happen. They didn't know exactly when this would happen. They knew it would happen. They already had that much when Jesus spoke these words. Now let me take an important excursus here, otherwise known as a rabbit trail. Actually, it's not a rabbit trail, but it will sound like one for a few minutes. You are probably aware that Christians 
as they have sorted through all these words of promise or assurance from the Old Testament about a time when all the nations will come and be worshipers of the one true God, they have taken varying views of how and when that's going to be fulfilled. Let me tell you two broad ways the church has accounted for this all nations language in the Old Testament. The expectation that all the nations become servants or disciples of God. One perspective is this perspective. Many Christians believe that this is literally going to be fulfilled. All the nations will become worshipers of God, but this won't be fulfilled until the day that Jesus returns to this earth. And by his own physical presence and power brings about the submission of all the nations. In this view, those things that I've just been reading, reminding you of from the Old Testament, those things are taken very seriously. There seem to be immense promises indeed. But in order for them to take place, in this view, Jesus ultimately is going to have to come back. He's going to have to rule for a time, most likely in Jerusalem itself, And in terms of this great commission, Jesus is telling his disciples to make disciples of all the nations, but that's actually not going to be possible until Jesus returns. That's one way of accounting for the all nations passages of the Old Testament. Another perspective that many Christians hold is this one. The all nations that I've just been referring you to throughout the pages of the Old Testament All nations talk is referencing worshipers coming from all the nations. It's not all nations literally. It's all nations in a representative fashion. There's coming a time when there's going to be people from all nationalities that come and seek to learn from the Lord. Those predictions then are seen to be fulfilled By the Gentiles entering the church, church sends missionaries throughout the world and people as they come from every nation fulfill this great commission. So in terms of the great commission, by this perspective, Jesus says, make disciples of all nations. And in a very real sense, we already have. Now, you need to have those two broad perspectives in mind. As we continue, have you become familiar enough with our Lord's final words to recognize how neither of those two perspectives about all the nations lives up to our Lord's final words? Brothers and sisters, I want to say to you that everything you need to know about the prospects for success of the Great Commission are actually found right there in the Great Commission. The Great Commission divides into two parts. They're the next two parts of my sermon this morning. The Great Commission divides into words of instruction and words of promise. And looking one more time at those words of instruction or commandment, words of promise or assurance, we'll hear a third perspective on the prospects of success 
of all nations coming to be disciples. So let's turn secondly this morning at the assurances of success found in Jesus' final words of instruction. Those are the words, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's the meat, the heart of the word of instruction. Now, keeping in mind those two perspectives that I've already given to you, if I had to choose between those two perspectives, if you had to choose between those two perspectives, I'd hope you'd choose the first one. Easily. If I had to choose between those two, I'd choose the first. And the first, remember, said that when the prophets, when the psalmist speaks of all the nations coming and being worshippers of the true God, it means all the nations will come. This view takes very, very seriously those words of promise in the Old Testament. It looks around today and says, very honestly, that's not happened yet. And says it's going to happen. What seems to be impossible will become possible. But of course, that view says it won't be possible until Jesus returns. I understand that. I actually do. It's very easy to look at the immensity of what Jesus calls the disciples to do and think, uh, Jesus, when are you going to come back to make this happen? I think that's actually the way the disciples were thinking when, as Acts tells us, they come to him in his resurrection appearance and say, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You hear that? You hear what they're saying? I understand that perspective. That was their perspective. And then Jesus says, no, you are going to restore the kingdom. You're going to go and make disciples of all the nations. Do you see, brothers and sisters, how the Great Commission answers that first expectation? If you will call it the not until he returns prospects. Of success. Jesus doesn't say he's going to make disciples of the nations. He says we must. The very things that many of us are tempted to think can't possibly happen until he returns are the things that he tells his people to accomplish in the interim until he returns. I sometimes think that some Christians hear the Great Commission as if Jesus said this, go and make disciples of all the nations. And when you're utterly exhausted and you realize it's impossible to do, I'll come just in the nick of time. and I'll make sure that the agenda succeeds. Brothers and sisters, remember what we learned a few weeks ago about what Jesus does in defining the nature of the coming of the kingdom. He does that here. Remember how we saw, he says to them, in effect, the kingdom has come. He says that when he says, all power and authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The kingdom has come because the king is now ruling. But we also recognize that he was saying the kingdom will come through what Jesus calls us to do. Whatever they would have thought as they heard those words They would have recognized Jesus was giving them responsibility to bring about the great hope of the prophets. Jesus was not going to just wave his hand like he did to the wind and the waves and make everything okay. 
He was commissioning them to bring about the conquest that the old, the ancient scriptures foretold. I don't know how to explain our Lord's absence physically from the earth if this is not what he was doing there on that mountain. If the agenda of gaining the nations will sit essentially, ultimately in neutral until he returns, then why has he gone and why has he taken so long? But if, contrarywise, he has taken to himself the reward of his labors and from heaven is directing the coming of the kingdom on earth through those he's commissioned by these final words, then it all comes together. He actually is in Jerusalem. He actually is ruling and reigning through his people. That's how Paul speaks of Jerusalem. He speaks of it as the Jerusalem above. That's how the writer of Hebrews speaks of of, uh, heaven where Jesus is. He speaks of it as the heavenly Jerusalem. John in Revelation speaks of it as the new Jerusalem. Let me ask you before I move on. Do you think it might have the tendency to take a little of the air out of the tires of the Great Commission to think, This isn't going to be fulfilled until Jesus comes back. Can you see that? Isn't that obvious? Wouldn't it take a little bit of the air out of the tires of this great commission if that's our perspective? He says to go and make disciples of all nations, but it's not going to happen until he comes back. At worst, this would Turn us as a church away from the very thing Jesus calls us to do. And we just have the perspective. We've got to hang on until he comes back. At best, the church would focus, would limit its ambitions to saving as many souls as possible. But never mind the whole apparatus that's encompassed in the word nation, civilizations, societies. The Great Commission doesn't fit well with the not-until-Jesus-comes-back view prospects of success. You remember the second perspective? That was the perspective that says, in so many words, when the psalmist sings, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before your Lord, he actually means a representative number from each nation shall come. When we read in the Old Testament, All nations, we shouldn't think literally all nations. Actually, there'll be many from some nations. There'll be comparatively few, perhaps, from other nations. The Old Testament is not predicting global success of the gospel. It's just predicting, well, it's just predicting the way things are right now. It's good enough. The way things are right now fulfills the language of assurance of success in the Old Testament. Brothers and sisters, I wouldn't buy that perspective if it was the last one on the shelf. Can I tell you why I'm actually afraid of that perspective? I understand the seemingly impossible when I see it. You do too. When you encounter things in the Bible that are seemingly impossible, you know it when you see it. 
They could be promises, things that God says he'll do that seem impossible. Scriptures are full of that. They could be commands, charges or commissions that when they come to us, they seem impossible to fulfill. Promises, commandments, we know those things when we see those things. Our carnal tendency is to take the seemingly impossible and whittle it down. Is it not? How often do you read the scriptures and your, your tendency to say, well, it sounds like God is saying this, but he really must mean less than that. Or is it your tendency to, to get out ahead of God and say, oh, now hang on a minute, God's probably not going to do that much good in the world. You know which way our, our hard and unbelieving hearts go. We underestimate God. We also underestimate his commandments. We whittle those down, don't we? And bring them into more manageable size. We do this. And this perspective, some from every nation perspective, does this. It shrink wraps some really great things found in the Bible. I'll give you a couple of examples of ways we can shrink wrap big things in the Bible. The scriptures that I've been reciting to you speak about the gospel succeeding, about people turning to God in repentance and faith. It's a way of shrink wrapping that to saying that the time and the glory of the Lord covers the earth like the waters covers the sea. That's going to be fulfilled when God just kicks out all the unbelievers. He just brings that about by judgment. Well, that is going to happen. Here's what the scriptures summon us to believe. God's redemptive purposes are so large that it's his pleasure to bring the nations voluntarily to worship at Jerusalem in the language of the prophets, to bring them to praise the Lord it is a work of gospel increase. Isaiah puts it this way, the root of Jesse, Messiah, all the nations will inquire of him. Isaiah 49, Israel will be a light for the nations. My salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. It's by means of redemption, grace, that God gains the nations. Another way to shrink wrap big things in the Bible is to think of what Jesus calls his disciples to do in terms merely of election. This is how I think many, perhaps even in our circles, hear what Jesus says. Go make disciples of all the elect as best you can, even though you won't know for sure who they are. Baptize. Teach, you'll probably do that with a lot of people who aren't elect, but that's necessary. You've got to do that in order that the elect can be brought to me. Brothers and sisters, in light of the way the prophets spoke, the disciples would have never heard Jesus in those terms. As a matter of fact, Jesus could not have been more misleading. If that's what he meant, 
when he chose these words. No, no, I, don't, I didn't mean actually the whole nations. I didn't mean make disciples of all the nations. I actually meant just a number that I'm not going to share with you uh, and people that I'm not going to identify for you. And they're in the nations, so go find them. Jesus is not speaking this way to these men of Jewish expectation. Jesus, they would have heard him say, was not calling them to make some disciples from the nations. He was actually calling them to make disciples of all nations. Do you think that it might take just a little of the air out of the tires of our fulfillment of the Great Commission to think Jesus is calling us to make disciples, not the nations, just some from each. I'll admit to you there's some appeal to this. We take preachers of the gospel, in particular, off the hook. They wouldn't actually be setting their sights on whole communities, cities, with their churches, nations of the world. They just strive to be faithful and know that the elect will eventually be saved. Presbyterians, you are not called to make disciples of some invisible number of people that God hasn't shared with you the identity of. You're called to Christianize those you meet. You're called to work towards the Christianizing of the nation in which you live. By your giving and by your prayers, you're called to Christianize all the nations. That's the fullness of these words of instruction that Jesus gives us. So I have suggested to you that neither the perspective that the success of this Great Commission will only be fulfilled when Jesus comes, squares, with Jesus' words. I've also suggested to you that the perspective that the success of this Great Commission has already taken place because it was only intended to be representative numbers from all the nations. That doesn't square with what Jesus says. So what is the prospects of success? Let's look thirdly, lastly, at the assurances of success found in Jesus' final words of promise. I'll say to you, I'm not even sure that we need the second half of verse 20 to come to a third alternative way of envisioning the success of the gospel. I'm not sure we even need it. What we've seen thus far is that the prophets foretell the time that all the nations become disciples. Jesus then calls his disciples to make disciples of all the nations. That sounds like it amounts to a guarantee of success. Jesus is telling us to do the very thing that's guaranteed, but Jesus isn't content to do just this. He doesn't want these men to think that he's sending them out on a fool's errand. An impossible task. He says, and behold, I am with you. Always to the end of the age, success assured by the end of the age. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the perspective he gives us. 
The elders were joking that I might start having sermons on just single words from the last words of Matthew's gospel. A sermon on behold. Well, this is the sermon on behold, if you will. Behold, that's a word that says, listen to what I'm about to say. These are the final words of the final words that Jesus gives. Behold. Then he says, I am with you always. That could be its own mini-series. Let me just assume that you know something of the significance of Jesus saying that. Jesus sums up in those words everything that he was promised to be by the prophets. Emmanuel, God with us. He says, I am with you. And that stands in stark contrast to what's about to happen. Jesus is about to leave them. But he says, listen, I am with you. You know that those words are dramatically fulfilled. In Acts 2, when Jesus sends from his presence at the right hand of the Father, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the means by which Christ indwells his people and equips them for their service to him. And you know you've experienced the fulfillment of these words, I am with you, if you are truly a child of God, because you have another life in you, that of Jesus Christ through his spirit. Now, see, that that could have been a whole little sermon series. See how restrained I've been? I simply want you today to realize why Jesus is saying this. Why does he say, I am with you always to the end of the age? Why does he say that after just giving them a seemingly impossible task? Children, I know this has been a heavy sermon for you, so I need your help now. I need you to ask this question of yourselves. Think with me about this. I think you know exactly what Jesus is doing with just a little thought. If you had a a father or mother, wise and thoughtful, of course, in a very deliberate way, sit down with you and say, for the first time, I want you to rake all the leaves in the yard. You'd never done that before. The yard is immense. It goes on and on. Especially this time of year, the leaves go as far as the eye can see. And you hear your parents say, I want you to rake all the leaves in the yard. And then your dad said, and I'm going to be right there with you. Oh, oh, I understand He's giving me an impossible task, but he's also telling me he's going to be helping me. Or ladies, perhaps uh, your mother sits down with you for the very first time and says, I want you to make supper tonight. (gasps) The whole thing? Yes. Set the table. Everything involved in the meal. Putting away all the dishes. And then your mom says, and I'm going to be right there with you. Oh, you so scared me, mom. That's what you'd be saying, wouldn't it? That's what Jesus is doing. 
That's exactly what Jesus is doing. No, not exactly what Jesus is doing. Can I tell you how it's far beyond the things that I've just chosen to illustrate? Jesus is able, in a way your parents are not children, actually to say, as I send you to disciple the nations, I will actually be in you, working through you. Your parents can't say that. Jesus is saying that. Jesus, when he says, I am with you to the end of the age, he's saying, yes, you can do this. Yes, you will do this. Because I am with you. The working of the church to disciple the nations is the working of Christ to disciple the nations. That means, brothers and sisters, that Jesus is tying his glory to our success in making disciples of all the nations. What are the prospects of success then? They're pretty good. We rise or fall together. Are we going to fall? Is Jesus going to fall? A thousand times, no. This third perspective on the prospects for success in this great commission is fairly simple, actually. When the Psalms and the prophets, when Jesus speaks of all the nations, they made disciples, they mean it. When Jesus tells us to bring about this state of affairs, glorious state of affairs, by means of water and words, he means it. When he says to us that he'll be working in and through us to bring all this about, he means it. All the nations, disciples of Christ, by the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, the question is not really, ultimately, for the disciples who first heard these words or for you and me. A question of what they mean. They can only mean made to mean something different with some great effort. The question is whether we will shrink down these words to something more manageable, more believable. I think it is easier for Christians often to believe that Jesus has forgiven them their sins than that he is going to forgive Bring salvation to all the ends of the earth. They ought to be both pretty hard to believe. Jesus doesn't tell us how long this will take. Till the end of the age, he tells us what he wants us to do. He assures us he's going to make our labors as a church through the ages successful. You realize what we've been trying to do this morning? We've been trying to peer into the future. That's what we've been trying to do. We're not unique as Christians in trying to do this. There are a lot of people who do this. Economists do this. Investors do this. Meteorologists do this with some success, not always. Businesses who are seeking to be on the cutting edge of technologies, they do this. They peer into the future as best they can. And you know what? Everyone has... As a resource to do that, they have the past and the present, the past and the present to, to try to determine something of the future. A lot of Christians get their eschatology merely from those two things, the past and the present. 
And so it depends on the time you find yourself in the history of the church. If that's your sole criteria for peering into the future, what you think the prospects of success are going to be. If you're down in the bowels of superstition in the medieval period, you may not think there's much prospects of success. Or if you're groaning as a persecuted church under a communist nation, you may not think there's many prospects for success. On the other hand, if you're on the wave of reformation and revival, great awakening in our own country, you might, if you're just going on past and present, Factors, you might be very optimistic. Brothers and sisters, we are better than that as Christians. The only foundation we have for peering into the future and for asking, daring to ask this question, what are the prospects of all the nations becoming disciples of Christ? The only foundation is the word of God. It's of the essence of the Christian religion to believe the Bible says, no matter how bad it sounds or how good it sounds, I want to, this morning, as I conclude, simply say, I give you permission to do what many of you want to do, to believe that God is really that good and that great to make disciples of all the nations to believe that what he has called us to do, he intends to enable us to do. Or as Matthew, who is throughout this gospel, repeatedly put it, to believe that success in bringing to earth the kingdom of heaven is assured. Praise be to God. Amen. You've been listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice, a ministry of Resurrection Presbyterian Church in Matthews, North Carolina. If you've been blessed by today's podcast, consider sharing it with someone you know. And thank you for joining us.